Hello, I'm Ian Wright, and welcome to the first of two podcasts which delve deeper into the key elements of the Bayes White Paper on corporate governance and the role of the regulator. We'd originally decided to have one episode, but there was so much to talk about, we decided we needed two. So here's part one. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of our ICAW series looking into the topics covered in the government's white paper on restoring trust in corporate governance and audit reform. My name is Ian Wright. I'm Managing Director of Reputation and Influence at ICAW and I'm the chair of the series of podcasts. I hope you caught our opening session which set the scene as to why reform and indeed comprehensive reform at that is needed. This episode goes into more detail about several key elements of the White Paper's package of reform. Now, much attention has been given to audit markets and the role of the big four accountancy firms and subsequent questions about audit quality, competition and choice. But arguably, the White Paper equally emphasises the importance of corporate governance and the role of the regulator. So what do we mean by corporate governance? The term can be defined as the system by which companies are directed and controlled. It is a combination of tangible and intangible factors and processes such as decisions made by boards and management, the culture of an organisation, challenges and scrutiny to executives on strategy and other matters from non-executive directors, and the manner in which the interests of stakeholders, whether they are shareholders, employees, suppliers and customers, are managed. Strong institutions underpin the strong performance of our economy. Now that could be strong institutional factors regarding individual companies, but it can also mean a strong and effective regulator charged with ensuring that the overall system works in the interests of the general public and users of things like financial statements. Because, let's be honest, investment decisions involving billions of pounds and affecting tens of thousands of livelihoods may be based upon the reliance that those users give to those annual reports and financial statements. Recent criticism of the performance of the regulator in this field, the Financial Reporting Council, has led the government, through the White Paper, to propose replacing the FRC with a new, more powerful regulator, the Audit, Reporting and Governance Authority, or ARGA. To discuss these really important topics, I'm joined by a really high-quality panel with exceptional experience in the matters of corporate governance, stewardship and regulation. Marla Shah-Colan is an associate partner in EY's assurance practice and runs the firm's corporate governance team. She's written several publications, including Engaging Stakeholders, Restoring Trust. Tom Gosling is executive fellow at London Business School and a member of the steering committee of The Purposeful Company, a leading authority on corporate governance, investor stewardship, regulation and responsible business. He previously was a senior partner at PwC, setting up and leading that firm's executive pay practice. Andrew Ninian is Director of Stewardship and Corporate Governance at the Investment Association, the trade body for investment managers. Andrew's responsible for leading on corporate governance, stewardship and engagement matters, as well as overseeing the IA's Institutional Voting Information Service, which analyses FTSE-listed companies for compliance with best practice in corporate governance. John Green Adada is Head of Board and Committees at BP and recent winner in the Governance Hot 100 Awards. John, I'm not entirely certain I've ever put the words hot and governance in the same sentence, but there is a first time for everything. 
And he won that in the board influencer category, seen as an individual who is able to influence strategic decision-making at the most senior level and is particularly adept at forging relationships with key stakeholders. And I'm also really delighted to be joined by Elizabeth Richards, Head of Corporate Governance at ICAW. To the panel, welcome all and thank you very much to contributing to this session. I'm really pleased to have you here. John, I'd, I'd like to start with you, if I may. Given your role at one of Britain's largest companies by market capitalisation and most significant in terms of global reach, and, and the nature of what BP does means that it attracts attention from around the world and having to deal with stakeholders on many, many continents involving things like fossil fuels, sustainability, as well as investors demanding ever-growing dividends. The government states that good corporate governance is essential to the running of a successful company. In your experience, John, is that right? And if it is the case, why do some companies not seem to value or prioritise it? If governance had been done consistently well across the UK's largest companies, we wouldn't need this white paper, would we? Thanks, Ian. There's a lot in there, and, and I'll, I'll try and take each of those in, in turn. Right at the outset, I'll, I'll probably just flag that any views, of course, that I express here are, are my own and don't necessarily reflect what, what the BP position is on those different topics. So just to start, I just want to reiterate exactly what you said, um, um, Ian. I believe that uh, sound corporate governance is essential to the running of, of a successful company. And, and um, in my own mind, there's, there's absolutely no doubt um, about that. And also completely agree that there is a need for us to continuously reflect upon the effectiveness of uh, our governance principles and consider the introduction of change where, where we consider it to be, to be necessary. And, and in this case, I think, I think a case has been made but before I dive into into the detail, one fundamental further belief that I that I have is is a significant majority of organisations play by the rules that we have, the principles of corporate governance that have been set out, and diligently disclose and report on these uh, on an annual basis, as well as engaging with with investors on an on an ongoing basis um, as well. But that said, we all have to admit, just reflecting upon just the recent corporate failings and failures, that there are a number who either don't get this right or, or, or don't have an interest in it. And my view on this is, is this is underpinned by corporate purpose and transparency, as well as, as, well as culture, all of which are key principles of our, our current corporate governance uh, framework, and all of which ought to be led from the top by the board, uh, essentially. And in this sense, I think if we look at or reflect upon the recent corporate failings that, that we've uh, we've seen on the market, I, I believe that there's an intrinsic link between a breakdown with regard to corporate purpose, uh, transparency and culture, or any combination of those those factors, which therefore means that any steps that we take to essentially encourage others to take a, a close and more serious look at those those aspects would, would be very welcome. But fundamentally, and Ian, you mentioned this in, at the start in terms of the multiple stakeholders that current organisations have to deal with. Fundamentally, we're talking about trust here. So, so this is this is not so much about us as organisations looking within our own governance frameworks. This is very much about restoring trust in the fact that that majority that I mentioned earlier 
are actually taking this seriously, are actually doing all they can to ensure that companies are well run and that effective stewardship is in place of the assets that are placed um, uh, in the trust of, of, of various boards. So in this sense, I think taking it to that next step in terms of restoring that trust by having a very clear set of regulations, a clear set of legislation if necessary, and clear expectations around what organizations need to need to be doing and how they need to be reporting on what they're doing is absolutely important. The final point that, that I'd probably just make is obviously much has been said about the potential issues here regarding board liability, auditor liability, um, and, and so on. But, but I do believe, given that many of us um, are actually focused on this day in, day out, I, I, I do believe that, that whereas those are, are important incentives, if you like, to, to ensure that uh, the right processes, frameworks, structures are in place, I believe that that drive is not necessarily at odds with what we currently have, uh, because organizations that have the right approach, the right structures, governance and arrangements in place, would essentially need to continue doing more of that, but therefore then just need to focus on, on the on the compliance aspects of it. And herein lies my, my only potential challenge or, or, or food for thought here. One is, is there will be a considerable cost associated with uh, the implementation of these rules. And therefore, we need to give a bit more thought to when they come into, into effect. We're, we're still reeling from the impact of, uh, of, of COVID. We're still trying to get our heads around what a, a post-Brexit Britain um, um, business structure looks like. And, and there have been various global initiatives as well, which we need to factor in. So, so taking all those into account would now be the right time to introduce a new layer of cost um, for, for, for organizations um, around the country uh, as we're trying to establish new trade um, um, connections globally. Is this the right time or does this send the right message to people who we're trying to attract to come and do business with us here? Um, and then there's a separate aspect around complexity. We, we also need to think about the complexity around um, um, around our investors and other stakeholders who rely on the information that we provide. Apologies, I've kind of gone on for a bit there, but I'm almost in a soapbox here, but uh, and I could go on for a bit more, but I'll turn it over back to you, to you. Thank you, John, and I'm glad you did go on because I think that sets a number of issues that are really important in this debate. And I will, over the course of our time together, try and unpick some of those things such as competitiveness um, and the timing of this uh, in a moment. But Marla, I I just want to come on to you, if I may. The white paper refers to several key actors in this whole corporate ecosystem, directors, investors, auditors, the audit committee, as well as the regulator. And John, in his opening remarks, alluded to a lot of this. In the white paper, directors of large companies get special attention in a strong and effective corporate governance system. Is that the right focus? Has the white paper struck the right balance and emphasis by looking to directors as the key actors in avoiding unexpected corporate failure? Several questions wrapped into that, and I'm just going to first start by picking up from the question you asked, John, on whether we'd actually be in a position of actually needing the white paper if governance had been executed consistently well over the last few years few years and and quite frankly I think yeah quite possibly we'd need a paper of some sort because actually governance is not a static governance is about 
as you put it in your introduction, is about having a framework by which companies are directed and controlled. And even if we hadn't had the failures that we know about in the last few years that form a large backdrop to this white paper, we may have needed a paper perhaps of some other sort because companies are constantly evolving. The range and complexity of issues that directors are dealing with has changed hugely even in the last two years, let alone the last decade. So governance frameworks, I think, need to evolve to support companies and boards deal with the complexity and the range of issues that are on their plates. Your point on on corporate failures, I think it's fair to say that governance cannot solve everything. So even if executed consistently well, A, I think we work in a capital market system where actually, and I'll be controversial here, companies do need to fail because that's where, you know, risk-taking, that's the the extreme risk-taking goes to. Now, there's a balance to be had, I agree, but I think that's the nature of our capital market system. We cannot eliminate failure. I think what we need to focus on is how we reduce the impact from a fallout. So I'll get onto the the question you asked me on, on the role of directors within this white paper. Firstly, I think I really welcome the fact that it does Uh, look at all constituents, uh, as you call them, actors in the corporate ecosystem. Because personally, I feel in the last few years, the balance has been quite skewed in terms of how much the audit profession has been regulated versus directors. So yes, I do agree that directors actually have a huge role in a strong and effective corporate governance system. As to your question, has the paper struck the right balance by looking at directors' duties? I think in some areas it's very progressive, you know, so strengthened accountability for internal controls, their statement on steps taken to prevent and detect material fraud. I think it's it's very far reaching and it will require company directors and management to do something quite differently. And and John just talked about, you know, the timing of it and the fact that actually there's a cost implication to everything. I think in other areas, I would say it's a little bit passe, if I can use that word. So the one area I would pull out as an an example is breaches of directors' duties related to corporate reporting and audit. I think firstly, those are just two areas. um, Those two areas are really a microcosm of what directors are responsible for. And the duties they call out are, you know, things like failure to keep accounting records or proving accounts only if they give a true and fair view or proving the director's report. My personal view is is actually these are so, you know, 1980s. For example, they don't even mention the strategic report. They don't mention anything on director's duties around ESG or Section 172. And really, my reflection is these are things that directors ought to have being held accountable for anyway. And the key point that brings me on to is enforcement. You know, you can create director's duties um, in law, but if they aren't enforced, then I think the question is, how will that change anything? So we need to keep in mind that actually it requires not just new regulations, but how the effectiveness of those regulations is monitored is, is absolutely key. And my final point is is your question around preventing failures. I do think we have to remember that, aside my point, and actually we work in a capital market system where perhaps some degree of failure is, is needed to kind of, you know, have survival for the fittest and, and have a vibrant capital market. 
I think that failures are actually also due to poor business models, poor judgments around strategic decision making, and even sometimes a lack of um, resource. So I don't think in, you know, by themselves, the new director's duties that the white paper is um, proposing will um, prevent failures. Will they minimize the impact? Potentially, but I think it requires good enforcement and it requires, you know, a good regulator too. You're listening to the ICAEW Insights in Focus podcast. Marla, I really want to push you on failure. I absolutely agree. You know, corporate failure is an inevitable part of an innovative and open capitalist economy. Um, It's the reallocation of, of capital and no system in the world can help prevent that. And there could be some negative consequences. But I'm really interested in terms of the nature of governance when it comes to this. And your your contribution, your answer, where you said, you know, failure can be caused by poor business models, by a failure to deal with strategy, as well as a lack of resources. I understand your point about failure, but the, the, the sharp question I've got for you as a supplementary, Marla, is, yes, failure will always happen, but does poor governance increase the probability of failure? Absolutely. And I think if you have poor governance, it completely amplifies the probability of it, but also the impact of it, I think. So, you know, governance can act both as an accelerator, but also as brakes. So it can accelerate, you know, good strategic decision making. I think if you have good governance, it actually minimizes the impact of the fallout. So absolutely good governance is is a vital ingredient on both ends of the spectrum, actually. Thank you, Marla. Tom, I'd like to turn to you and I'd like to centre my questions on regulation. But before I do so, John, in his excellent opening remarks, mentioned purpose. Purpose was mentioned in our opening podcast on this as becoming increasingly important. And I know you've done really strong work on what is a company's purpose. And I talked about the purposeful company of which you're a key member. Could you talk a little bit about how you think purpose is important? Or is it, frankly, just nice motherhood and apple pie stuff that we're here for the benefits of society, our staff, our biggest asset, but actually, in the real world, people are just keen to maximise profits? I mean, purpose definitely shouldn't just be motherhood and apple pie. I mean, I think there's a fear that in, in some cases it is. But what purpose done well should do is to orient company very strongly on its reason for being in terms of you know, the benefits that it provides society and the problems that it's trying to solve. And I think this goes much beyond just being nice to stakeholders, but really understanding how that purpose is integrated with how the firm makes money. And I think organisations that get that integration right will inevitably have an outward looking focus and therefore they're likely to treat their stakeholders better because they absolutely understand the relationship between long-term stakeholder value and shareholder value. But also I think that um, it can promote greater discretionary effort and motivation from employees, you know, better innovation. And this isn't really anything new. I mean, anyone that studied great businesses over the decades will know that most great businesses are focused on what they really do well and not just on making money. And it, it's really as simple as that. I'm very keen to, to get your views about regulation, which is a you know key component of the, the white paper. And in particular, I'd like your insight about the need for effective regulation and what effective regulation actually looks like. In the context of how we're describing this, the reasons for the white paper, what, in your opinion, did the FRC do wrong? 
and do the remedies in this white paper, replacing FRC with AGA, giving it new powers? Is that enough in providing the right balance for strengthening regulation to protect the users of financial statements and keep corporate Britain on track? Yeah, I mean, I think the Kingman report diagnosed what had gone wrong at the FRC pretty well. It had an either incoherent or limited remit, which was sort of inconsistency. So, you know, it it could take action against directors if they were member of one of the accountancy professions or actuarial profession, but not otherwise. Um, It had responsibilities for the UK Corporate Governance Code, but not for reporting on the code. I mean, and I think the remit was kind of full of those sorts of inconsistencies. I think there was a sort of somewhat gentlemanly informality to um, to its to its own governance, but also, you know, a consensual approach in how it interacted with market participants. Arguably, it had got a little bit too close to the profession and corporates and was insufficiently aggressive as a regulator and not proactive in driving the debate on audit standards. And And I think you could also argue that it had become a little bit detached from what should have been its core constituency of, of, of investors. And I think to be fair to the FRC, I think this was down to what could politely be called an emergent approach to its role, responsibilities and structure, which sort of got cobbled together, you know, over time and evolved. And it wasn't an organisation that was, you know, corrupt or, or inherently failing. It was perhaps a bit weak and amateurish and, um, you know, although I would say absolutely not in its people, many of whom, you know, were and remain excellent. So I, I think what the FRC really needed was to be put on a proper statutory basis with a clear mission to be kind of properly funded independently of the organisations that it's overseeing and to be oriented clearly towards the kind of key constituency of investors and users of reports. And I think that how Argo will be constituted pretty much does all of that. So, so I do think that that's been got right. I think that we need to be you know, realistic about what any regulator is ever going to be able to achieve. So you know, regulators, you know, there's a lot of talk about trust. Regulators can't, can't force the public to trust companies or companies to act in a trustworthy way. But I do think that the framework that we're going to have under Argo will make it much more likely that companies have the right incentives to, you know, report well and act well, and that there will be better remedies when they don't. But I do think we always have to maintain a level of humility about what governance is going to be able to do and what regulators are going to be able to do. Yeah, and picking up on Marla's point, I'd actually be quite cautious about expanding the role of Argo into trying to hold directors accountable for you know, very broad responsibilities under either Section 172 or Free SG. I, I, I think that's something that a regulator will struggle to do well in an effective way. So I think one of the benefits with how it's being set up is is to give Argo a very clear, specific and achievable remit. And, uh, and I think that's, um, that's a very good step. But do you think that the proposals in the white paper you mentioned, you know, that maybe one of the problems of FRC was that it had become removed from its distinct objectives uh, and away from its core constituencies, I think it said. Do you think the scope of what the new powers that Arga could have, as suggested in this white paper, is too broad and therefore it won't be targeted or focused? Uh, no, I don't think they are too broad. I think they're, um, I think they're a relatively um, coherent set of powers, actually. I mean, I, I think the area where potentially it's going to face the most difficulty are you know, in overseeing the whole area of audit reform, which I think is, you know, a very, very thorny question. And, um, you know, I think that its joint responsibility for enhancing competition 
and driving up standards is kind of a problem that no one has really come up with a clear methodology for solving in, in my view. So I think that combination is going to be a tough one for Arga, but I think it's reasonable for it to have those joint objectives. I think that its ability to you know, get more information and to investigate breaches in a more forensic way, I, I think are appropriate and helpful. Uh, and also the broadening of its responsibilities in relation to corporate reporting, I think eminently reasonable and doable. I mean, let's be under no illusions. I mean, the, the new body is going to have to kind of staff up, resource up and, you know, really up its game in terms of what it's had to do in the past. But I do think it's um, not an unreasonable range of responsibilities. Elizabeth, can I turn to you and stay on that subject of what a corporate regulator should look like in a modern developed economy? In your opinion, in terms of the white paper, does Argus propose scope and powers? Is that effective or will it be efficient? Or in your opinion, does it carry more of a stick than a carrot? Or is the right balance there as set out in the white paper? I think it is the right balance. I think there is more emphasis on sticks. And I think that's appropriate because that's what regulators do. I've got no doubt that Arga will try and follow in the FRC's footsteps in some respects by considering how doing naming and faming, which is a lovely carrot to do. But ultimately, regulators need sticks to do their role. So um, that's where we are. I think that's what the modern economy requires because the modern economy fits in with modern expectations of investors and it fits in with modern expectations of society. And society may not understand all the detail around audit or ecosystems or the different roles that different people play, um, but they do understand that bad things have happened and in their eyes, not enough consequences for the individuals concerned. So I think there does need to be a realistic chance of enforcement through use of sticks. If that can't be achieved for any reason, then I think at least we will have an empowered regulator that can itself be held to account and ask difficult questions about why it didn't take action. I think that's really, really important. Kingman did talk about lots of gaps and lots of confusions in regulatory powers. And ultimately, that's just not acceptable. On top of the formal powers in law, we do need to talk about the culture change, I think, from the FRC to Arga, because somebody earlier alluded to the fact that perhaps there wasn't sufficient tension in the relationship between the regulated community, so between companies and the FRC. And the Arga, Arga really does need to change that perception. My personal suggestion is that we stop naming regulatory projects after individuals. I think that's an outdated approach and it gives very much the wrong impression. And We do need to modernise and move away from that. And I think that it's all very well to give regulators sticks, but they can only use those sticks if they have the oxygen of intelligence information. They know what's happening on the ground. And that's why the whistleblowing proposals in the white paper are so important, Ian, and why we're likely to argue that that side of Argus business should be extended even further. Elizabeth, thank you. I'd like to turn to Andrew. And Andrew, I'm really interested in your perspective with regards to stewardship. And you're dealing with shareholders, institutional shareholders and investment managers 
every single day. And I'm really interested in the nature of shareholding in the UK in 2021. If you look at recent data, the majority of UK shares are held by international shareholders. The proportion actually is at a record high. And investors may hold positions through some sort of tracker fund, some sort of algorithm, which means that shares are bought and sold not on the basis of a company's future performance, but actually on the here and now of share prices. So a diffuse, a dispersed shareholder base, shareholders that may be frankly indifferent to governance, is the backdrop in which we're trying to deal with some matters of trust and improved governance and stewardship. So my question to you, Andrew, is how on earth do you improve stewardship in this context when you have a you know, a shareholder base that might not be here, might not hold shares for long, and frankly don't care? Does the white paper do enough to assist good practice in stewardship? Thanks, Ian. And, and I think it's important to pick up on that governance point first and, and do shareholders care about governance? And I would argue that they do. Because fundamentally, a well-governed company that is structured in the right way, is is taking the right long-term decisions, is more likely to deliver long-term returns to those shareholders. And whether those shareholders are are active or or indexed, they are likely to hold those shares over the long term. So they are interested in the long-term performance of the company and ensuring that the company is governed for the long term. And, And stewardship and the approach that my members take to stewardship is around actually how do we get the company to focus on the long term, focus on the material issues that is more likely to deliver long-term returns. So in in turning to, to how can this white paper help and improve that stewardship, I think the first important point is to talk about audit quality. All investors rely on the disclosures which come from companies, both the financial and non-financial disclosures. And I think a key aim, and and through the three reviews we've talked about in the past, we've been clear that what we want to see is improved audit quality over a wider range of, of disclosures. So it's important that we have a strong regulator that can ensure that we're getting high quality audits so that investors can rely on the disclosures which are made by companies. And increasingly, those disclosures which are financially material on ESG matters, on other Section 7.2 disclosures, are increasingly of focus and they should be increasingly in the purview of some kind of assurance. So high quality audit is the first aspect. The second is improving the breadth of disclosures and the white paper suggests disclosures around internal controls, resilient statements to give shareholders more information so that they can make better stewardship decisions. And it's important for those initial stewardship decisions, but we should also point that actually the requirement to have those disclosures say on internal controls will change company and director behaviours and strengthen some of the processes within the board, the boardroom and the company to ensure that they are able to say publicly, we have sufficient internal controls that we as directors are signing off. And then I suppose the final aspects that I would bring in is how do actually investors bring about their stewardship responsibilities on a day to day basis? 
as I've said, there are more disclosures coming. But for us, actually, the focus on stewardship needs to be on the material issues which will have an impact on long-term value. And actually, some of the, the factors around audit committees talking about the quality of the audit they've received, AQR reports coming from the regulator, maybe graduated findings coming from auditors, will actually give more hooks for investors to be engaging with companies. And, and we're getting more explicit lines for shareholders to engage with companies through engagement on the audit plan, through suggestions that auditors and audit committees have distinct time at the AGM to take shareholder questions. And this will feed into the normal accountability mechanisms that shareholders will hold directors account for the decisions that they have taken in relation to the audit and governance more broadly. And giving shareholders the tools to do that is one of the mechanisms this white paper has used. But let me challenge you on that, Andrew, if I may, to be frank, which is I mentioned about, you know, the nature of shareholding in the largest companies in, you know, across the FTSE. And even if you're a really large institutional shareholder, you may be, you know, in a FTSE 100 company, even though you might have trillions of pounds under your control, for the FTSE 100 companies, you may just have 4, 5, 6% shareholdings in a particular company. The ability of you to be able to challenge effectively directors and the board in order to change long-term strategy is limited. And we get to the situation that Andy Haldane at the Bank of England's talked about, you know, the ownerless corporations, where really the work of management and executives are not really put under appropriate supervision. Is there anything else that the white paper misses that can challenge that point to make sure that investors can be given the appropriate tools to provide effective governance and stewardship? I think you've got to recognise actually some of the changes that investors do get and some of the system changes that have been introduced in recent years from the Investor Forum, which brings together like-minded institutions to create change with companies where there are particular issues, through to actually a concerted effort by investors to say this issue is important to us, be it executive pay, be it diversity, be it uh, climate change disclosures, where we're able to get an aggregate voice across the industry and say, this is a really important issue that we want you as companies to listen and we want you to change. And through a mixture of the stewardship approach in terms of setting out those expectations and then following through with voting. In recent years, we've seen significant improvement on some of those issues because investors have been able to use the existing stewardship levers they have. And I think it is continuing to focus on how we can improve that dialogue and ensure how companies respond when actually they aren't listening. And that does come into the collective engagement or it comes into highlighting cases where companies have got a high vote against and shareholders have used their power and they haven't responded. And through the Investment Association's public register, we highlight those cases and they often do bubble up and you do see some of them in the media and that does help to create change. Thank you for listening to the first of these two podcasts dedicated to the key issues around the white paper into corporate governance. The next episode focuses on trust and whether the government has managed to create a white paper that will stand the test of time in its proposals. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more from ICAEW, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.